everyone. Thanks for listening to Required Reading this week. As we talk about Jurassic Park, I wanted to follow up to the end of our Frankenstein month. Now, as you know, last week we did Frankenstein, and we're talking this by taking it into a modern interpretation. Now, we'll repeat this, of course, at the end, as we always do. Uh, But for November, if you want to read along with us, we're going to take you to Shakespeare, as we do our Shakespeare for the year. We're doing Hamlet, along with a teacher that actually taught me it, uh, Tom Zidlitch, has come to the show. And then we're going to, well, I guess in honor of the 11th day of the 11th month, at the 11th hour, we're going to be doing All Quiet on the Western Front as a way to celebrate the end of World War One, a little over a century ago but also round out uh, Veterans Day. So thanks for doing all you do to get us our listens, and we appreciate your reviews and your sharing. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we are following up Frankenstein with, I guess, the version I grew up with, uh, 1990s Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, and on the panel we have... Mike Carroll. And... Mike Burns. And we are going through, well, what was a blockbuster book in the time where the American novel was a blockbuster material, uh, in the era of Tom Clancy and Stephen King and... uh, uh, God, I just this 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 to me is an airplane book that I first read in middle school, followed up by 1993, the biggest movie of all time at that point, Jurassic Park by Steven Spielberg. Uh, so I guess we should start out since this is probably at least an intellectual property that everyone's heard of. Uh, how did you first come across it, Mike? Uh, yeah, so um, I think that. I I definitely came across the movie first. Saw the movie when I was younger, uh, prior to reading the book, and I think that it's it's funny that you called it an airplane book because I I definitely have memories of piecing my way through the first at least the first half of it for the first time the actual the actual novel. Uh, I have memories of it m- memories of myself making my more memories of me making my way through the first part of it um, on airplane and actually like on bus rides to and from Boston College up to uh, up to my home and uh, up to my parents home in uh, in North Denver and actually as I was going through this version of the book it must have been the same version because I have a uh, the the bookmark that I'm using here is uh, a bus ticket from Boston up to up to uh, up to where where my parents lived up on the North Shore so uh, it's funny that you called it an airplane book because clearly this was a bus and an airplane book for uh, for me for the first time that I was making my way through it. But I do, uh, I'm, I'm in reviewing for this podcast, I, I made my way through the entire novel. I actually don't know if I had read through the entire novel in its entirety until preparing for this podcast. Um, but I but I did so uh, and and was was happy that I did. And can't wait to talk about it. And uh, Mike is having his I'm traditional the Axel Rose <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Destroying Mike stands as we speak. <laughs> So Axel, this is a tradition, uh, yes. Um, you can switch to the other mic. Welcome to the jungle, baby. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. Um, you can switch to the next one. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can still be. I'm All still right, picking you up. I'll go handheld. Uh, so, where, where, how did you first come across this? I, I, I mean, I realized about reading this, I have never read it before. So, I just oh, okay. knew, knew the film. Um, and that was hard not to think of the film as I'm reading it. So, sure. Um, but yeah, it was a, you know, easy enough read and 
delightful in its own way. And, and I will say, as I was reading, I was like, man, the scriptwriter did a really good job of adapting this because it yeah. stays true to the novel for the most part and hits all the right beats. Um, and it's a great film franchise, and um, I'm sure we'll talk on that as well. But um, yeah, so that's my experience. And then it was on the summer reading list for seventh graders, Mike. You, uh, so I think, yeah, grade? I think I think it was on the summer reading list back when we before before we had any sort of um, like one book one Marist. We had a couple of required books that were that were specific to each grade level. But before that, we had a small list for seventh graders and a small list of of books for eighth graders. And I believe it was on that middle school list. Yeah, it was on that sure. list of my optional kids, books. Yeah, when they were in seventh grade coming in, that's what they read. Yeah. As the, um, as the books. So, yeah, it was on yeah. that optional. It was on that optional list. And it, we, it went over well. I mean, yeah. I think that's why they kept this for so many years because the kids will read it and it's it's a good story. Yeah, um, and, and I think why he persists as an author, if I if I may, I, I like that his books are sci-fi, but like ten minutes from now sci-fi. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I don't know what else you've read of him, but after I read this, I read it in seventh grade myself. Um, I read a bunch of his books. Uh, the Terminal Man, which is about putting electrodes in people's brains so that when they feel angry, they feel happy, and it pushes someone to the edge. Um, uh, and you have a bunch of books like that. He wrote the original Westworld, which has, of course, come back. We're doing it this year because, of course, the final Jurassic Park movie, which is a sentence which will never be true, uh, came out this past year and was a complete disaster. Uh, but, I mean... Uh, even things like Eaters of the Dead and Coma, like they're always that border of what's true and what's not. Let's push fiction as fact and kind of go just a little bit further. Um, and this book blew me away. This movie blew me away. Um, and it starts off kind of with this really great little prelude. Um, but I, I'm going to assume that all of you have heard this story before, so I'm going to go through it pretty quick uh, when I give my plot synopsis. Um, but the one thing that's different from the movie is this prologue. This family is walking down a kind of isolated beach, and this girl gets attacked by a small lizard. And as she, um, you know, eventually steroids help bring the swelling down. But when she's describing it to the doctor, it's like no lizard that anyone's ever seen before. We smash cut to an archaeological dig site where we're introduced to Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler, and Hammond just blusterly shows up and says, I've got something to show you. Uh, we're taken to a theme park off the coast of Costa Rica, uh, where using cutting edge uh, science, uh, there's even a hint of virtual reality, because of course there is. Uh, and crazy supercomputers, they've been able to piece together dino DNA via a fairly clever method, taking the blood out of uh, mosquitoes that have been frozen in amber, and we are introduced to what is pitched to them as a modern zoo. Um, but weeks before the opening day, we're trying to see whether or not it's safe. So we're getting a paleontologist, a paleobotanist, a mathematician who's ardently against it, and a team of lawyers to see whether or not it's safe enough to open. Uh, they're expecting a spectacle, and of course, being as this is a Frankenstein-esque parody, we, we know it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. So? Yeah, and, and just kind of right out of the gate, you you get the impression that John Hammond is a um, 
he's kind of like involved in almost like a lawsuit at, in in terms of in terms of trying to open up this park and is kind of like skirting the law and skirting the authorities in order to try and uh, against all odds open up this park no matter what he wants to open up this park um, and the the that's not made very clear to everybody particularly not to uh, to Alan and Ellie it's not made clear that this is uh, that there's kind of some some rationale behind why it is that that uh, John Hammond has asked for them to come to the park and it's basically so that he can have kind of the stamp of approval and that stamp of authority that says from as many people as possible it's safe to open up this park the only problem is that everybody at every turn is saying that it's not safe to open up this park uh, so you get the the juxtaposition between um, between John Hammond and his uh, his exuberance for bringing this vision to life and that is uh, played up against all these other people and their reason that is telling them if you could just see this clearly John you wouldn't be opening up this park so right. you get you get kind of like that at the particularly at the start of the story you get a lot of that in kind of like the background of what it is that's kind of like underlying in between uh, these conversations that's taking place yeah it's interesting to use the term vision because he has this great vision but also that great blindness right yeah. So yeah. that's his downfall that he can't foresee the outcomes of this and what happens. And well, and something I think that the movie does that the, or I guess the book does that the movie ignores is that prologue. Because when we did Frankenstein, remember Frankenstein starts at the very end of the story. The monster is out in the world and he's looking for his creator and we kind of cut back and he's cradling his creator at the end. The whole movie is like, what if these monsters get out? Well, in the book, they already have. In the book, innocent people have been killed and they are dying because of a lie, a cover-up, right? And so Hammond's already lost the game in the book and uh, this book didn't need a sequel, the movie didn't need a sequel, but he gets his just desserts in this book, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it's... It's just such an interesting idea uh, because we have creation from different stories. Mm. Um, in uh, Frankenstein, it's about a scientist pushing the edge of ancient magics, what I'm sure he spells with a K, and his modern science that can he, you know, crack the philosopher's stone and make eternal life. And here, Hammond's like, you know what can solve this? Money. And in some ways, this is a very anti-capitalist story mm -hmm. um, because the scientist he gets, much like Victor Frankenstein, Dr. Wu, is fresh out of school. He's filled with ideas, he wants to make a name for himself before he's going to be paid the big bucks. And uh, he doesn't even know the names of the dinosaurs he's making, to Malcolm's point. So it's just such an interesting parallel we've got. And the coffee is kicked in. And I'm just <laughs> going for it now. Um, but yeah, uh, so let's talk. Maybe we should talk about some of these characters because they're what drive this whole plot. Yeah. Um, you brought up John Hammond. Let's talk a little bit about who John Hammond is. Um, in the book, he's played by the lovable Richard Attenborough, which is... Um, or in the movie, you mean. In, in the movie, yes. In the book, down too, of course. Um, who is actually the brother of uh, documentarian David Attenborough, mm. so it does lend this kind of, oh, the dinosaurs kind of air <laughs> to it all, um, which is a problem because in the book he's a real piece of garbage. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't care about these people. He barely cares about his grandkids other than that they're pawns and this is supposed to be Disney World to him. Yeah. 
Um, and so for him, it's all about the spectacle. Clearly yeah. about the spectacle and the money that they will make. Yeah, and the, they they give a little bit of background on on him and too, and saying that he's the the. I think that in some ways the like the stature and the description physically that we get of John Hammond is pretty similar to what it is that we end up getting in the movie. But I think that the the personality is vastly different. And they 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 talk about early on earlier on in John Hammond's career before he before he created Jurassic Park uh, of the, the the little elephant that he would that he like the, the miniature element that he would bring around. And and again, it's all about that vision. It's all about that spectacle. It's all about um, it's all about the you 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 get the impression that that Hammond has this this idea of having a park with kids pushed up against the fences and being in in a complete state of of awe at this uh, at this these things that he's creating uh, and and I think that there's there are a lot of similarities between the personalities and the ambition that we get from Victor Frankenstein and then from John Hammond uh, and you get a lot of that in the personality in the book even though the description physically that we get is is kind of like this bumbling shorter but but also very um there's a, a notion of tenacity, yeah. I think, that, that John Hammond has in the book that is lacking in the movie. But nevertheless, you still get a lot of similarities between between John Hammond and Victor Frankenstein, right? At the at the heart of what it is that he's trying to do, trying to do you have the, the notion of science, just like with Victor Frankenstein. You also have this this idea of creation, right? That you that you you have the creation of the monster and then the creation of new life here with the with the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. And then lastly towards the end of the story just like with Victor Frankenstein when we were talking in our last episode talking about how he doesn't seem to learn he still is uh, he still is in inspiring those people on the ship uh, to to go out and and continue along with this expedition this is what you were born to do yeah. we got that same notion with John Hammond at the end of the story who who he cannot accept the fact that that this might not have been a great idea that this might not have been a good vision uh, and he and he wants to do it better next time. So you get that notion that he doesn't actually learn just like you do with Victor Frankenstein as well. So there's a lot of parallels. Well, and uh, just to add to that, I, I think this comes from um, Harding, who's the vet, but he goes, they don't even get it. He, even even with the tiny elephant, Hammond is lying to himself because it was constantly sick. There were genetic issues. Uh, they had to keep cloning it because it kept dying, and there was a fear that they wouldn't have a replacement before the next fundraising meeting. Like, And so the whole time, Hammond's just lying to himself. Um, and again, he just doesn't think of any of the consequences, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, what makes him a dreamer, but as he's reminded, you're not making Disney World here. Yeah. Um, so you think Hammond is motivated by, like we talked about, Frankenstein being motivated by sort of personal glory or image? Uh, is that what's motivating Hammond, or is it more money? I mean, you mentioned the anti-capitalism strain here. Um, what do you think is motivating him to do this? Is it to be like the grand maestro of this dream, or I don't know. I mean, I think he wants to be Walt Disney, right? He wants to sit at the head of a giant empire. He wants himself to be a statue. So does he want to be loved? Is that what it is? I, be I mean, beloved? Or? I, I mean, I th I, that's what I would think. Okay. You know, there's, no one knows who uh, UB Works is. Everyone knows who Walt Disney is. No one knows who designed the Lincoln animatronic, right? He wants his bronze statue welcoming people to the park. That's that's the way I interpret it. Yeah, and I... I, I uh, 
I do agree, and I think that part of the reason that I agree is because it does not seem, it seems very adamantly to not be about the money. For um, and for, for, for him and for everybody else that's involved in the park, too, there's a, there's a point where Wu is uh, thinking back, or we're getting a little bit of the backstory about Wu, and we're hearing that it had nothing to do with the money that he was that he was going to earn from this job. It had everything to do with being on the cutting edge of that scientific discovery. And for Muldoon, again, it had nothing to do with the money that he was going to get for, for being in this role. He has, he has a line where he says that it was all about like being the first to be the, the game warden in a park with dinosaurs. That, that, that notion of being on the cutting edge and, and just seeing the, the, and, and kind of like that fame and that legacy, I think, that goes along with that, that seems to be the purpose behind all of the people that are involved in the park deciding to be involved in the park. Uh, the difference, I think, with John Hammond is that for all these other characters, it was more of a, well, let's see if we can do it. Let's see if, we, if our ambition is strong enough that we can actually do it. Whereas for John Hammond, it didn't just seem to be, let's see if we can do it. It seemed to be, let's see if we can do it, and then also, let's see how grand and spectacular we can make it. Well, it's also, he can't be wrong, right? Because right? like about halfway through, there's a quote, uh, he's arguing with Wu whether or not we should, like he goes, uh, Wu comes up to him and says, we should make the next generation slower, more docile. And he's yeah. like, no, people want to see action. Uh, and he goes, but this could be dangerous. And he goes, uh, face the damn facts, Henry. This isn't America. This isn't Costa Rica. This isn't even Costa Rica. This is my island. I own it. And nothing is going to stop me from opening Jurassic Park to all the children of the world, or at least to the rich ones. I tell you, they'll love it. Yeah. Right? That, that's... That's kind of him in a nutshell, and it's great until the quote that we'll get to at the very end. Yeah. When he's just going, well, Muldoon wasn't drunk. Then why'd you hire him, man? Like, yeah. You had all the time in the world to fix this. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, we can kind of talk about Ellie and Grant together, I would yeah. guess. Uh, the majority of the book, not the movie, but the book is told from Grant's point of view. Mm -hmm. Because in the book, there's this whole section after the T-Rex paddock where he goes on the merry adventure with the kids, which takes up about a third of the book. Because there's also um, uh, an aviary where he runs into pterodons. Uh, they float down the river for a bit fighting the T-Rex. Uh, there's a lot with just Grant and the kids. But Grant, it comes from Montana. He's your Indiana Jones type. He's kind of a rugged, um, all-American guy. He's a, the paleontologist who's being funded by the Hammond Foundation. And, uh, I mean, there's this kind of does he want kids or not with Ellie, uh, but then he becomes kind of a surrogate father protecting these kids for most of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, he, he's, he's an interesting character. He's our in. Um, but, again, it's a very kind of cut-and-paste character from another action story, mm -hmm. which I nothing wrong with. I like this book, but there's nothing special about him in this way, other than he, it's through him and Ellie that we realize the immensity of this, because um, he's the one who asks the question, do our fields even matter anymore? Uh, what is to become of, you know, of knowledge if we can just clone these things? It's, it's, he's an interesting character in that aspect. Yeah, and I think that there's there's a, a couple of things that you mentioned there that, that are 
a little bit different in the book than they are in the movie. Uh, just mentioning a couple of them, you were talking about the the um, the the children that that uh, of the uh, well, really, it's John Hammond's grandkids that are that are there visiting the park. But the uh, the children's age and and roles in the movie are actually flipped from right. what it is in the in the book. Um, and I will say that I I think that that was a smart move in terms of the the movie portrayal of it. Um, in the book, Tim is the is the elder sibling, and he's also the one that has uh, that has a little bit more history in hacking and coding and with computers and so Tim Tim's role right kind of like a long grant and the fanboying of grant uh, that's normally uh, attributed to the sister is is a lot of that is given to the character of Tim in the book and then in the in the book as well the the, the sister's name I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now Lexi Lex Le- Lex, yeah. Lex or Lexi yeah is uh, I found her I hate to say this uh, annoying kind of annoying oh, yeah. kind of yeah and, 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 <laughs> Kind of just, time. just kind of like, like, it, and it's draining on you as well. That you, you, you as the reader know the what, what is at stake here and the danger that these characters are are experiencing. And then Lex constantly complaining and constantly whining uh, was was a, a difference that I was glad was not in the movie portrayal. Was Crichton going through a divorce or something? Uh, With the exception <laughs> of Ellie, all the women are portrayed very badly. No, I wanted to. I haven't read much Crichton, but those passages. Just made me think. It made me cringe. It's just like this is why is this here for one thing, like the pseudo father figure stuff. Yeah, and whining and just like, are you gonna marry him and kiss him and all this? And then just, yeah, I didn't like that at all. Yeah, so. it's, it's very. It's yeah. I don't, I don't know. know that it adds anything. Do you think yeah. it adds anything? No, I don't think that so it does. Why you can leave it out? Yeah, the movie exactly. I think that that's that, that's precisely the reason why it got it got wiped in the way that you're yeah. the way that you're saying. And I mean, and the kids are. I guess there to to add fear. I mean, because like I have nothing wrong with Alan Grant. We were talking about what you could teach us. We all agreed in like middle school. He's kind of a perfect unbiased protagonist. There's like, does he have to save the kids? Well, it's just he's going to do it. Did he want kids in the past? Not really touched upon. Totally fine. We know that he's a he's a widower. But like other than that, you know, he just he raises to the occasion. He, there's not a lot to him, which is fine. It makes it a good quick read. We're fine. Um, we should talk about everyone's favorite character, Dr. Malcolm. Ian Malcolm. Uh, he's a snarky son of a bitch. I, I, I love him. He's. We don't know why. Well, we know he's invited because he's a mathematician, and he's been one of the loudest critics of the Hammond Foundation. They want to prove him wrong, but he puts uh, Crichton puts the morality of the entire book in his mouth. Um, which, if you're reading through this at a clip, like we probably all did to, to do a podcast every two weeks, uh, it's fine. If you analyze him, this is some, you know, philosophy 101 stuff. I love, but I love how they make it so snarky in his mouth. I, I, I love Malcolm, and Jeff Goldblum brings it to life in the movie. In the book, he's somehow more snarky, which is great. Um, we can get, get into him a lot because he gets... He goes nuts by the end of this, which is great. Uh, but any thoughts on Malcolm? Yeah, yeah. I think I've got a I've got a passage here that's that's more talking about Malcolm's theory, uh, the the impredictability theory that he uh, that that he uses as evidence for chaos one, theory. The, the, yeah. yeah, for for one of the many reasons why um, this park should not be open because they're the 
when you're putting that chaos theory into place, uh, there's just way too many intangibles that could potentially go wrong. Uh, so this is this is about halfway through the novel, and they're they're discussing the the <laughs> the many theories of Malcolm, uh, and it says this: Malcolm's model. Malcolm's models tend to have a ledge or a sharp incline where the drop of water will speed up greatly. He modestly calls this speeding up movement the Malcolm effect. The whole system can suddenly collapse. And that was and that was what he said about Jurassic Park, that it had inherent instability. Inherent instability, Gennaro said. And what did you do when you got this report? We disagreed with it and ignored it, of course, Arnold said. Was that wise? It's self-evident, Arnold said. We're dealing with living systems after all. This is life, not computer models. And it's just such a great, it's such a great demonstration of A, the, this notion of this this theory of of life kind of falling into this this chaos and why it is that it shouldn't be what why this park should not come to be mm -hmm. but it's also a great demonstration of all of the red flags that were going up that they should have been paying attention to that they were not or that they were kind of shooing away or that they were putting on the back burner i think perhaps most accurately in light of their own ambition i think that in a, in a lot of ways these red flags that are going up constantly in the creation of this park keep getting pushed away and the only reason that I have that I can think of is for their own collective ambition I'm curious what you guys think about that like the question is do you what what do you think about Malcolm's like actual drive like does he want to be right like because he's such an ego he totally wants to be right that's but why he's, he's the there, only right? one who's right prove them wrong like yeah. he's gloating in that isn't he but, but and like we can skip way ahead after he's about to die from whether morphine or raptor attack but like he's talking about whether or not like in chaos theory yada 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 i know this is all science that's way over my head that they softened so far but the idea is things don't really change in huge waves we just can't predict how they're going to change and a big change is called a paradigm shift like right before he loses consciousness pretty much for the last time he says almost para and Hammond's like it's almost paradise we're so close and no you've almost changed you've almost proven everything right mm -hmm. but I'm still right. Screw you. Like, in his last breath is that it's almost a paradigm shift. Yeah. You, you almost did it. Um, so I would think as you're teaching this, I mean, if you wanted to teach it, you could teach it as a novel about pride, right? Yeah, absolutely. All these different elements of pride and individual pride. So um, and I mean, that'd we, be an easy in, right, to teach it. And it's... The scene we were talking about before we started recording is where we should bring it up now. They're on the tour, and they're arguing whether or not these things can multiply or not. And they're showing, and at this point, the ride is stuck. If you know the movie, the ride is stuck. It's stuck much longer in the book than mm -hmm. it is. In the, but he's like, okay, show me the computer model where we're looking at all the dinosaurs and the whole thing. And he goes, look, we're supposed to have 238. It says we're 238. He goes, well, can you search for more? Can you search for 239? And they find another dinosaur. 250, they find 250 dinosaurs. It tends to like, let's just do 400. And it keeps finding more and more dinosaurs. And he's like, it's all about could, not about should, right? Like, and you can just hear Malcolm saying it because you know what Jeff Goldblum sounds like. But he's never been prouder in that moment. Even though he's about to, like, this is the most danger he's ever been in. Mm -hmm. But it finds something like, the computer throws an error. And it's because instead of 400, they found 375 or whatever mm -hmm. it is. 
but this is the moment he should be terrified. Yeah. Um, and he's at his most proud because he's proven himself right. And Grant's like, I told you, they are multiplying. It's great. Oh, it's so good. What's the term that Malcolm has for, like, the fake intellectuals? Or well, there's, a, there's a word he has for that? You know what I'm talking about? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not I, sure. I had my book. I didn't bring my book today. <laughs> I'm prepared. But um, the idea that, yeah, that people are just sort of... Get this wrong, but I'm sure I will. Um, fooling themselves or their their pursuit of profit or the pursuit of pseudo intellect is is oh, misleading. You I, know forget, what I'm I about? forget the the term, but he he's specifically referring to scientists, right? And he's saying like the problem with scientists. I, I think he even calls them frauds at one point. But he goes, "You don't have any knowledge. You you rip off the knowledge of your predecessors and just stand on their shoulders. Pass you didn't have to earn word. the knowledge right. you had." And he's talking specifically to Wu there, and yeah. he turns um, to him. And he goes, your chief scientist doesn't know what he's even creating. He's just making things for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, ref- I mean, this is his most scathing indictment of the Academy to begin with, um, which I guess is why he wanted to name his theory after himself, damn it, because he earned it. <laughs> which I didn't realize. I mean, Crichton has a, was, has a medical, medical doctorate. And so yes. I like wonder what his background was as far as the Academy. And, and, but mm-hmm. I don't think he ever practiced. So um, just no, he, he went to, I think The Andromeda Strain was his first book, uh, which is about medical stuff. Uh, Andromeda Strain's pretty good. Uh, don't read it now. We just had COVID. Um, but it, it's pretty good. Uh, other minor characters, uh, we talked about Wu. We talked about Muldoon a little bit. Muldoon is the game warden. He's kind of the big game hunter. Uh, they get him from Africa where he was, you know, on a, like a safari reserve. Um, you have John Arnold, who's the engineer. Harding, who's the vet. Most of these are kind of side characters other than to bounce off of, you know, Malcolm Sadler or Grant. Uh, Gennaro is the attorney who dies on the turlet. Um, and then Dennis Nidri, who has his own interesting side story. Um, he is a MIT um, kind of computer whiz guy who is building all these giant matrices uh, in computers, uh, in the crazy supercomputers, to hold the DNA information so that they can breed the dinosaurs. Um, he is grossly underpaid because he wasn't explained the depth of the project. And Hammond, being the kind of skin flint he is, refuses to pay him for the work and all the grad work that is being done. So he's like, I'll just sell out to the highest bidder. Again, we have a, a moral on greed and pride here. Um, and he's the one who's going to shut down the park so we can smear out some embryos, um, uh, which kind of triggers all the chaos. Um, and something they don't really address in the book or in the movie, which they do address in the book, which is Hammond saying, you know, had that had it not been for Nedry, the park would have worked. Um, and in fact, when he dies, Muldoon gets the line, maybe there's justice in the world after all. Mm-hmm. So there, there is this kind of idea that like, you know, who's right? That Malcolm is like, these systems are inherently unstable and all they need is a trigger. Well, what if that trigger never comes? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is just kind of interesting here. Um, I don't know. I mean, as far as the book goes, this is kind of an unusual one because everyone knows the beats of this. Like, even Frankenstein, we got to say, well, actually, you don't know the beats of this. You kind of know the beats of this story. Yeah, I got to say, just having seen the film first and I know where it's going and all that. So I wonder, as a first time, anyone coming to this cold, like how suspenseful it is, it is it or I don't know, because I, I couldn't recreate. Because I'm reading, I, just, I knew where it was going, I knew the film, and you know some of the differences. But you know what I'm saying? Like, how suspenseful is it? Um, 
just as a novel. Actually, I'll, I'll ask, take the same question and ask it to you in a slightly different way. If someone has never heard of this property, would you give them the book first or the movie first? Ooh, that, that, that's really interesting because I think that uh, kind of going going first off of what you were saying, Mike, I think that it's really hard to recreate your own version of this story without knowing, having seen the movie already. Right? Right. It's, it, it was impossible for me to do right. so. And I think that you're, you're really a student picking up on the, the, the same way that I was reading it, which was all I could do was find the little idiosyncrasies that were different between the book and the movie, but ultimately what was playing through in my head was the movie right it was the it was the shots and the 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 scenes that were taking place on the movie and I was forced to kind of create that comparison between those small differences but ultimately it was essentially the movie that was playing out in in my head same and then I don't know if that was the same for you Nick or not I mean to your point I don't even know. Like, there's some things I think that the movie does so well that it's hard to avoid. Like, the first scene when they're driving up in the Jeep and you see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, mm. there, there is a sense of wonder that Plus, you can't get. It's especially in a theater, like a big... Th I remember seeing this when it came out in the you know early 90s or whatever. You had the big theater experience with the surround sound. and That's yeah, incredible. I mean, yeah, Grant is, like, shaking. He pulls himself up. He turns Ellie's head, and Malcolm goes, you son of a bitch, you, you did it. Yeah. And... Um, and Malcolm, you know, and Hammond's walking around on his cane, and he goes, you, you've got to see the T-Rex. He goes, you have a T-Rex. Like, there's this sense of incredible uh, awe yeah. and wonder that makes your blood run cold. And he goes, they have a T-Rex. Like, it's, and you are all of a sudden five years old again, and you want to see nothing more than dinosaurs. But the book is much more of a slow burn. Yeah. And like, because the T-Rex is a threat throughout the whole thing. It's almost a, it's almost a co-star. Every so often, it's like, hey, I'm here. And you're like, oh. Again, uh, which you can't do in a movie, and Spielberg worked his magic in the movie. But this book, the, there's much more constant threats. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I, again, this is the perfect thing to bring on, bring on a beach because it just keeps going and going. Um, and there's entire sections that they have to remove just for cost, I assume. And Spielberg wanted puppets and wanted to look real. Um, so that scene in the aviary I find terrifying. Yeah. There's nowhere else, or the scene on the river, terrifying. Nowhere else. Um, but that first movie is a masterpiece. So you're not going to, and you know me with film. Uh, so I, I don't know. Yeah. And that, that notion of wonder and awe that you guys are describing and seeing it in the theaters. And, and I think that that's exactly what John Hammond is trying to recreate right, with this park. And so right. I think that in some ways, if that's kind of like at the crux of what it is that this story is trying to recreate, um, the, the movie does such an amazing and spectacular job at recreating that sense of wonderment and awe that is it's different in the book. I'm not going to say it's not there because it is, but it's it just comes across in a in a different way, I think. Well, and this is just me talking film, but like well, and I guess here, Frankenstein is as successful as making a human as Hammond is as successful as making a dinosaur, right? Mm. He has to splice things together. It doesn't look like it really would in real life. But he's made something that people are like, holy hell, what have you done? Like, it's amazing. And Spielberg does the same thing again, because 
the raptor is not what a raptor looks like, but now for us, that's always going to be what a raptor looks yeah. like. The T-Rex sound that he put together, mixing all those animal sounds to make that horrifying, echoing roar as it steps between the two Jeeps, that has never existed before, and now he literally owns a copyright on it. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is now such a part of our cultural zeitgeist. Like, someone who's never seen the movie will probably recognize that noise as a dinosaur noise. Yeah. Uh, which is remarkable. Um, you know, Disney doesn't own that crap, so we're good. Yeah, so. I'm thinking as you guys are talking, so is this, this isn't really a, a horror or a monster genre, right? Because, no. I mean, what I associate with horror is like you turn off the lights and you're afraid something is going to get you. Right. Unless you're a five-year-old kid, you're not going to think a dinosaur is going to come get you. So it's no. not realistic in that way. Yeah, and that's that's one thing. It's that's that's kind of similar a little bit with with Frankenstein here. If you think about it, all around Victor Frankenstein, people are dropping dead, right? And there's there's that that notion of the monster who has systematically, in some instances, killed a great many people that are close to Victor Frankenstein. Right. Here, though, you get people that are dropping dead all around John Hammond. Right. So, I mean, I, in, even in my notebook here, I needed to write, I needed to, like, write little arrows for how everybody died. And I've got, like, I've got, like, lizards. I've yes. got velociraptors. <laughs> I've got T-Rex. I've got all the different ways Have that these people Have you ever considered actuary science, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So, so as I'm going through this, though, you, you recognize that in both the novels, there's this death toll that's yeah. that's surrounding these characters now for victor frankenstein it weighs on him incredibly and you get this notion of regret for having created this monster yeah. because of the the death that it's bringing about that regret is not present at all for john hammond he's no. he is he he wants to create more dinosaurs. He wants to, in the in the case of Victor Frankenstein, it would be like if Victor Frankenstein wanted to create more monsters. Right. And I think that that that's a it's it's a similarity. And you're talking about this notion of like a horror movie and what it is that that what it is that that would look like. Well, you got dead bodies dropping all over the place in both of these stories. Yeah. But that notion of of how it is that it's impacting the person that's at the crux of it all yeah. is drastically different in Frankenstein sign that it is in Jurassic Park. Well, and yeah, there's the intent, right, of the monster is, yeah. is hunting Frankenstein earlier mm -hmm. or harming him, whereas the dinosaurs are just being predators. Right? Animals, animals, yeah. 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 To, to what extent do you think that that's the, the vocal agency that we get from the monster? Remember we talked last last episode about just how eloquent the monster is and just how uh, just how thoughtful the monster is and just how just how much we liked the monster more than yeah. even the, the creator, Victor Frankenstein. We don't get any sort of monologue from the T-Rex here or from, from the, the creation that's been that's it's a very different story if we would but it's a but we, we don't get any sort of we don't get any sort of vocal agency we don't get any sort of uh, of that humanity behind those dinosaurs which is certainly intentional I think but do you think that any part of that might be a lack of um, a lack of understanding from the side of the creation do you think that that might play into it at all or am I just totally overanalyzing no, I think it's fair because we don't get their point of view right yeah, yeah so that's, that's very closest valid we, I think the closest we get comes from Malcolm and then the animals uh, actions because what he's saying is you know there's that whole metaphor he goes I'm just creating a zoo he goes no a zoo you're taking a relatively small difference in climate and vegetation and taking a lion five degrees colder by putting it in Atlanta right 
but you're taking something 65 million years in the past and bringing it now. That's infinitely different. We don't even know how these things will act in a state of nature. And then when the power grid goes down, we get lines from Harding and Arnold saying, well, these, uh, you know, the T-Rex has gotten to the Gallimimus Center, and so now they're actually acting like animals in nature. That's the closest to agency they get. Yeah, and I, I, I really like what it is that you just said there, Nick, and it brings up a, a passage that I, that I wanted to read. Please. It's when uh, Wu was talking about the what it is that they're doing in this park, and I think that it's important to note that we're not just creating a monster like we did in Frankenstein. We're recreating the past, and it's another kind of like almost slapping God's face. It's almost another another notion of ambition that you're not just trying to create life. You're also trying to rewrite history and recreate the past. And he gets into it with this. Cassidy with this, connection. Right, exactly. <laughs> and we, get, we, we get this awesome line where it says, well, not exactly, Lou said. He paced the living room, pointed to the monitors. I don't think we should kid ourselves. We haven't recreated the past here. The past is gone. It can never be recreated. What we've done is reconstructed the past, or at least a version of the past. What I'm saying we can make, what, what I'm saying is we can make a better version. Better than real? Why not, Wu said. And it's this notion that you're, you're not just creating life, you're rewriting and reconstructing and trying to make the past better. And I think that it adds on just another layer of that ambition and another layer we've talked a lot about pride. It adds on another level of pride to think that this is something that humanity would be capable of doing and to put into place. And then we see all that downfall that comes afterwards. Well, and it also shows Hammond and Wu missing the point completely. When you go on Space Mountain at Disney, because they keep saying Disney, I'll use Disney, you're afraid you're going to die. You're not in actual danger. <laughs> Making a bigger T-Rex, you're actually in danger, which is something that they don't see. And even Muldoon's like, I need two bazookas. Yeah. <laughs> and then one drives away without him, which is kind of the best. He goes, where's the car? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, I... I also, this is just a random thought, and I don't want to forget it. Don't make more Jurassic Park sequels. Do what they do with Frankenstein, and just let someone remake the original. Mm -hmm. Because you really could give this to a Tobey Hooper or a John Carpenter and make it a pure horror movie. Which, I mean, to answer your earlier question, I think this is an adventure story. Okay. This reads more like an uh, Alan Quartermain or... Indiana Jones, right? Because, you know, the hero is Grant trying to save the kids in dangerous situations, and at the end he gets proven right by being dropped into a raptor hatchery, which is a really weird scene, which Spielberg was right to cut. But still, like, that's that's what it is. It's an adventure story where our protagonist is right. Hmm. You could focus on the horror angle all you want and really make it body horror gristly, which we see very little in the movie. Um, and in the book, we get some of. Like, it's very visceral at times. Uh, but you could focus on those yeah, and they wrap up the leg, right? And they, yeah, right. Yeah, and then like Malcolm is watching the raptors claw through the ceiling, and he goes, the "Ugly bastards, aren't they?" Like, react. You're on morphine. I get it. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, Anything on the plot, you guys know the plot. They, they decide to go on the park ride. Uh, they're along the way. There are no animals the whole time. They try to seduce the T-Rex with a goat. Um, why are the raptors in a different pen? Turns out they keep breaking out of everything. That won't be important later. And then they drive along um, around halfway through the ride. The park, uh, they get out to see a, in this, it's a six stegosaurus instead of a triceratops. Mm. Um, 
they get back in the ride just as a storm rolls into town, um, which takes them back past the other side of the T-Rex paddock when the power goes out. Mm. Power goes out because Nedry is trying to steal the embryos um, for Biogen, a rival engineering firm. And uh, while the power is out, the, all the fences go down, which wasn't supposed to happen, uh, only his escape. But it turns out that he cut corners everywhere, uh, despite saying that he was supposed to spare no expense. And so uh, as the park is burning, uh, he is sitting back and fiddling um, as Rome burns around him. Yeah, and I think it's the, the first time that the power goes out is because Nedry is trying to is trying to essentially like leave the park with these with these embryos and then they when they get the power back on they, it's it's kind of like a like a foolish kind of human mistake that they didn't realize that they were drawing from the like the generators the, the generator and so then the power goes out a second time allowing for the the rafters to be able to to make their way out again and in the midst of all of this you get malcolm who is just kind of like you get the impression twiddling his thumbs and smiling from ear to ear as he's like well this is what i talked about all along these are all those unpredictable things that are bound to happen when you when you try to create a project of this kind of ambition um, and I think that that's it's you you get that theory at the beginning of it and then you watch that theory that chaos theory playing out throughout the rest of it and then in the background you get Malcolm just smiling the whole time because he's right that that these are the 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 fact that the human error was going to come into place and they weren't going to recognize that they were drawing too much energy from the generators, that's exactly what it is that he's talking about with that theory that we're now watching play out for the rest of the novel. And I mean, and along the way we get these little inklings that all of this is a facade, right? Uh, and th this thing is broken up into iterations, which is again referring to uh, calculus. So, you know, I apologize if Pamela Kinsley listens, I'm not doing any of your math justice. But like midway through the second iteration, no, the, 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 like the third iteration, we get introduced to this idea that they want to come out with another version of the dinosaurs, version 4.4, uh, which just lets you know that these are manufactured just like anything else. And we could be doing more, but we're not, uh, because he's like, destroy this whole batch. What, what, what would be the purpose of that? Um, and to your point, as the power is going down, him and Wu are eating ginger ice cream. He's like, you're John, you're not getting it. He goes, but isn't this ice cream delicious? It's, and in the movie, it's Sadler instead, but it just is such a perfect scene where he's like, it'd be a shame for this to go to waste. People are dying. Yeah. People are literally dying. And you're talking about how nice the ginger ice cream is. He's talking about how they sourced the ginger, which is so farm to table, it's delicious. I love it. Isn't that when his grandkids are out, like, lost and... And, and out of contact. Right. Yeah. And he's completely, in, in, you know, oblivious to that or... And we know Grant, and again, it's it's Crichton saying, "Don't worry, they'll be fine." But he has no idea. Like he, that that is our dramatic irony. We know he's fine, or uh, Tim and Lex are fine, but he has no idea that his grandkids are going to make it. <laughs> it's just awesome. But he very notably doesn't care, he right? Does not care and, at all. and I think that that it is such a juxtaposition between Frankenstein too, who has all of this remorse and has all of this uh, weighing on him throughout the story, and thinking about when he is in the midst of recreating 
Frankenstein's, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the monster's companion, and then he he has all of these these like moral qualms about doing so, and ends up destroying that that next batch, right? You're talking about the version 4.4. That's essentially like the Frankenstein, the the monster's companion that Frankenstein's trying to do, and you never get the impression that John Hammond would ever, in the midst of recreating life, in the in the in, the, in uh, a moment of ambition, decide that he's going to destroy version 4.4 because it might bring more harm to people. No, you got a John Hammond who is just totally, not even oblivious, just totally neglecting all other human life at the hands of this pride and ambition of creating this, this theme park. 4.4 would come out if it was a different color and it could be at the other park, right? And <laughs> Jurassic Park Euro, right? You're like, and then it was like, oh, this T-Rex, he's blue. And you're just like, oh, it's blue one. Yeah. Um, like that, that's, that's who he is to me. Um, we also here get probably the most gruesome scene in the book. Uh, this is where Nedry dies, mm. uh, where he drives, again, they do a good job in the movie, but mm -hmm. he drives into a site, he's trying to get to the dock, the roads are terrible, the Dilophosaurus uh, gets him, just tears him apart, uh, and it's much more visceral in the book, uh, where like he's found later, um, and they're like, little things are chewing on him, uh, the copies are chewing on him, and around here is also, like you alluded to, where Muldoon and uh, Harding find a leg, right. which is and, and it's just this way. light, they say, I remember, yeah. <laughs> Which is which is great, um, but yeah, um, and again, I, I I assume you guys know the beats, so we're just kind of plowing through this so we can get to the morals here, uh, but. Pretty much at this point, they can't even bring the park fully back online because these are electric fences, and there's so many holes in the fences now that everything shorts out. So they're really trying to see what they can even salvage, and Hammond's still convinced they're going to open next month. Uh, but they're just not going to open next month. That's the answer. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have the kids, and, uh, you know, the kids still have little bits of wonder here or there, right? Like, Lex is trying to feed the baby Triceratops, and, uh, you know, they have these connections to these creatures because they're still kids with animals. And you realize that Hammond has something there. You just don't need raptors, maybe? You don't need the T-Rex? Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Um, we're, we're kind of wrapping towards the end. I, this is about where I really got sick of hearing from Lex. <laughs> and, uh, and they were right to switch the genders and make, while uh, they keep Tim the dinosaur nut, uh, they make her more mature because, God, she is so annoying. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I, I was reminded most of that when the the like the feeding of the the baby triceratops is is it, it's right around the same time that they're going to like the the pterodactyl treehouse that is again Nick you brought it up earlier is like a terrifying scene but they I, I guess they wanted to make another lodge this is in the book this is not in the movie though I do think that they incorporated this scene into like Jurassic Park three if I'm not mistaken, I think you're right. uh, but they they have this other lodge, this this new lodge that they were trying to create, so that people could like wake up with their morning coffee and be able to see the pterodactyls that are flying around, uh, flying around the lodge. But of course, it was incomplete. Uh, and in the midst of all this, like Lex almost ends up dying because she wants to. She's like emphatic about making sure that she uh, is keeping this baby dinosaur that she is essentially keeping as kind of like a pet. Uh, and it's almost 
one of those moments where Lex and Tim and and Grant can all see like the danger of of trying to keep a, a, a dinosaur as a pet like this, and the the dangers and the threat that this that this brings about for this young girl's life to constantly be trying to like turn back around and make sure that the dinosaur is okay, and at the same time you see that that is never the case for Hammond, right? So I think that these are these are moments where I think that in the book we get a few times when even the young children are able to see that this isn't such a good idea. Even Tim is able to say to his sister, now we need to leave the baby dinosaur behind because it's going to be a threat to us moving forward when John Hammond and a lot of the other adults like Wu and Muldoon don't necessarily see that same threat. Yeah, and I... I... I, I like that, and we're, we, we can also kind of get into some of these other people who are dealing with the same thing. Like, we have um, Harding dealing with those stampedes, and we have what is the risk versus... Man, my brain just completely went blank. Hi, how are you? Reward, <laughs> risk versus reward. Well, and even pride again. We have... Um, Harding and Muldoon, and no, Jero and Muldoon out there trying to catch the T-Rex. We should kind of mention also they're tracking these people because there's motion-sensitive cameras that are on and off depending on the time. Also, some of the, the animals that they know exist have little GPS trackers in them, but all the other ones don't, mm -hmm. so they're kind of lost as to who's where. Um, but they know there's only two T-Rexes and both of them have trackers. And so they're kind of following the T-Rexes um, because I guess we're lucky. I don't know. Um, but speaking of pride, I just was remembering the scene when they're in the open field with Muldoon and Gennaro. And they're firing the trank gun at the T-Rex. Mm. And Gennaro gives him a hard time because Muldoon misses because he's drinking heavily at this point. But then the T-Rex just faints about 10 minutes later and goes, I told you I got it. And it's like, what are we happy for right here? Um, but yeah, at this point, Malcolm's like, the Malcolm effect is in full effect, baby. Yeah. I'm dying and I'm high on morphine. There's a lot more drugs in this than in the movie. Um, <laughs> but the, the motion sensors can't locate one of the T-Rex because he's in one of the blind spots because of the river. And mm -hmm. so that must be where the kids are, they figure. Um, and Grant kind of gets them away. Um, at this point, though, we have to power back on the, the whole power plant because the the backup battery is just about to die. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why anyone else dies. <laughs> Wu dies here, um, and we're about to get to the death of Hammond. Um, and Grant once again has to come and save the day, mm -hmm. right? Um, the last kind of movement of this is we're trying to get off the island before the Costa Rican government gets here. We're trying to get off the island before the raptors kill us, but we still have to count the raptors for some reason. Gennaro's like, why can't we just leave? And I'm also like, why can't we just leave? Yeah. And Dr. Grant's like, we need to make sure we know how many raptors there were in case they've already left the island. Because by this point, Tim and Lex have gone onto the computers and seen that there are raptors on the ship that are going from the island to the mainland. So we're about to have on the Costa Rican mainland a bunch of raptors. Mm -hmm. um, which I don't know how that would have played out, but you know, sequel setup, come on, Carpenter, give us something. Um, anyway, um, at this point, there's so many little things here, like when they go to the nursery and the raptors eat the other raptors. Do you, do you guys have third period? Uh, first I've lunch. I've got third period, but first lunch, lunch yeah. Okay. Uh, but we're almost done here anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, Hammond gets it. 
he, the kids kill him, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they play the T-Rex sound. Uh, he gets spooked and twists his ankle, and then the compies get him, yeah. which is kind of great, because that's how the girl got attacked at the beginning, and so we have the story go full circle. Um, and this is where we get the line that you wanted to share. Yeah, yeah, I got I got one uh, one line here from uh, from the narrator's perspective when when Hammond is about to meet his fatal end, uh, and this is him kind of reflecting on the the park and what it was that he was trying to create and where things had gone wrong. Uh, before I read it, it's it is reminiscent of kind of a moment that could have been used for some metanoia. It could have been used for this recognition. And we, we, we might have been able to get some sort of acknowledgement of a mistake made, but we don't end up getting it. Well, and I will say, this is a parallel to the scene that Mike said earlier, because at one point, uh, we, uh, Malcolm analyzes the whole staff, too. And he goes, Arnold's all right. He's an engineer. Wu's the same. They're both technicians. They don't have intelligence. They have what I call thin intelligence. They don't yeah, see yeah, the yeah, immediate yeah. situation. They think narrowly. They call it being focused. I don't see, they don't see this around, they don't see the consequences. Yeah. And then this is what Hammond's analysis Yeah, is. so this is, this is on a very, on the opposite end of the spectrum, this is how Hammond sees, uh, sees his workers and sees his project as well. It says, in truth, neither Wu nor Arnold had had the most important characteristic, Hammond decided, the characteristic of vision, that great sweeping act of imagination which evoked a marvelous park, where children pressed against the fences wondering at the extraordinary creatures come alive from their storybooks. Real vision, the ability to see the future, the ability to marshal resources to make that future vision a reality. No, neither Wu nor Arnold was suited to that task. And for that matter, Ed Regis had been a poor choice too. Harding was at best an indifferent choice. Muldoon was a truck. And then it says, Hammond shook his head, he would do better next time. Yeah. And it's that, that notion of the, the failed metanoia, it's this idea of this, this ambition and this pride that he has not learned, then in the next like, page he ends, up, uh, he ends up being startled by the noise and ends up dying. Uh, but he, we get the notion that even on his deathbed, he never, he never had any sort of regret like we get from Victor Frankenstein, and we never get a moment of realizing a recognition that he had been wrong at all. All he wants to do is to do it better next time. All he wants to do is create more dinosaurs and to kind of see this through once again. And just like at the end of Frankenstein, I'm reminded of the end of Great Gatsby, right? Where we get this this rowing on and we, we get the this ambition and this striving and this betterment. And and well, of course he ends up dying, but we, he certainly never gives up on that vision and never gives up on that dream either. Well, and uh, I mean, just to I guess flip it on Gatsby earlier on, we do have the party scene where they are pressed against the glass, and he goes, "Look at them leaning out the window, Swigger. They can't wait to see it. They have come for the danger." Like he he does get that moment briefly. It doesn't yeah. last, but that's what he wants. And so then to have that very creation, the T Rex, be the thing that the fake T Rex, right? It's it's metaphorical, the not real one. Just yeah. get, gets him in the end. It's it's justice. It's it's perfect. Um, you know, and Wu tries to redeem himself. He dies. Uh, Gennaro's a coward. 
<laughs> so he survives to live with his cowardice. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is pretty much the end. Uh, mm -hmm. The whole metaphor of the birds, it turns out that Grant was right. He He's justified in himself. In the book, um, Malcolm dies. Uh, for those of you who don't know, they did do a sequel to the movie and the book. And the first sequel, Spielberg goes to Crichton and goes, you're writing a sequel for me. Um, and the, at the beginning of the sequel, the sequel is fine. I like it. I like Jurassic Park better. But it goes, uh, the Costa Rican doctors declared me dead, but then I was taken to a better hospital where they declared me alive. There's <laughs> really something like that. And then Malcolm is the protagonist of the second book. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's really the, the kids, Sadler, um, uh, Grant, very few people make it out. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a terrifying narrative at the end there. There's hope. Uh, the Costa Rican government blasts the island to oblivion. Yeah, they use napalm, I think, is yeah. the, the way that it's described. Um, but, yeah, so we're pretty much through this. Anything else you guys want to touch on before we leave? No, I mean, I never taught it. I don't. I could see how it would be good in middle school grades. Um, yeah. It's in our book circle. I'm not sure if, uh, Mike, if any of your students had chosen it, but quite no. a few did choose it for mine. So oh, I've, really? got, I've got a couple of students that are reading it independently now for our 10th grade class. Oh, interesting. Um, so the, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. And right at this point, we're still kind of making our way through our, our checkpoints. And so they're, they're about a third of the way to a halfway through the novel or so. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what it is that they're, that they're taking from it. And maybe even more more based off of this conversation, I'd be interested to hear from them who has seen the movie and if there's anybody that hasn't seen the right. movie, what their impressions are of the story without without kind of that that idea in mind already. Yeah, and since the movie only covers about 40% of it, it's another one where it's kind yeah. of easy to tell whether or not they just watched the movie. Yeah. Um, Mike? No, I was just, yeah, that would be a, a good tell for why they picked it, because they saw the movie and liked it, or thought they could pick this book and not read it because yeah. it's a movie. Yeah, yeah I, I, I read it in middle school. I could see it fitting in a middle school classroom. It's something Mike and I haven't really talked Well, we've talked a little bit about it. Like, doing a popular literature like section, mm -hmm. just because there was a time when, like, people really were waiting for the next James Patterson novel, you know, or the... Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy. Uh, oh, what's the one Harry Potter. The Alphabet Come Burger. On. Yeah. Um, you know, A is for Alibi, B is for... What's it? Who did that? Judy uh, Pinko? Pinkot? Uh, anyway. You know, like, in the 90s, there were, like, these, like, 10 authors who were always in the top 10 list, um, and, you know, they made bank. Robert Ludlum, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Bourne books. Like, that was a big deal, and I just remember waiting for the next Crichton with bated breath, and then they made Congo and I stopped caring um, or, or Sphere or one of those I forget which movie broke me of that habit but um, I, I, this is probably the book I've read the most mm. I've probably read it really? 12 or 13 times oh, wow. um, I love it it flows um, and so is, I, I, but as far as difficulty I'd say 7th or 8th grade yeah. and then other than that just if you haven't read it It'd be a good one for a book discussion group, but otherwise, just pick it up for an airplane or a beach. Like, it just goes. You won't want to put it down because the action comes quick. Um, and you just, if you love a little sarcasm, it's got that 80s, it's got that 90s snark. I love it. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we're done. 
with this month. Our, uh, thank you for indulging us in our Frankenstein-esque month um, for November. Uh, we're going to do our Shakespeare. We haven't done a Shakespeare yet this season. We do one a season. We're going to do Hamlet. Uh, and I imagine I'll be very quiet as I'm learning from one of my previous teachers. Uh, we're going to get Tom Ziblich back on the show, uh, who taught me Hamlet. Uh, so I'll be looking forward to that. And then in honor of the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, uh, we'll be doing All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm. Uh, thanks for listening, thanks for subscribing, and thanks for sharing, and thank you, whoever told you to listen to this podcast. We appreciate all you do to help us keep this show going. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Yep. Right, let's get some lunch. Required Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks.